Amen. Uh, man, what a great morning so far, huh? Um, and it's good to be here with you. Uh, good morning. My name is Sam. I'm one of the pastors on staff here. Uh, so excited to have you with us this morning uh, and, and really to, to do what our church exists to do, which is to help more people more often say yes to God. And, and last night, it really was a, a joy and a pleasure for us to be able to help those parents uh, say yes to God and, and committing that uh, for their kids. We get to help volunteers say yes to God every week and help kids and students say yes to God. Uh, and, and everything we do is to help people say yes to God, and we're going to do that uh, this morning as well. Uh, I want to tell you just a little bit about my family uh, as we get started here. Um, my wife and I have been married uh, almost 15 years. It'll be 15 uh, years in February, and we uh, have four children. Um, the oldest is 12, and the youngest is seven. And we like to do a lot of different things uh, as a family, but one of the things that, that we seem to do uh, often is we'll sit down to watch a movie together. Uh, and, and we do this partially because we have limited time and and it just seems to be a thing that we can all enjoy together. But lately, uh, it's been increasingly difficult to find movies that the entire family can agree on. Uh, And if you have uh, children or have had children or been around children of multiple ages, you can understand uh, why that would be difficult. Uh, My 12, almost 13-year-old has a certain genre of movie that she uh, would prefer, uh, mostly that involves really sappy teen romance. And so we try to avoid that at all costs, Um, whereas my seven-year-old is really happy to watch anything animated with fighting. Um, because that's what little boys do. And so uh, it, it can be difficult sometimes for us to find a movie uh, that we'll all enjoy together. And, and I thought back, as I was trying to solve this problem a few months ago, uh, about a movie that we could watch together. And I, and I thought, you know, there were some movies from when I was a kid that, that surely my kids will enjoy. I enjoyed these movies as a kid. Surely my kids will also enjoy these movies, some of them from the 80s. Yes, I am that old. Um, <clears throat> and one of the movies uh, that we, um, that we tried to watch with our kids, I thought this would be a great movie, uh, is the movie Back to the Future. And, and some, of you are, some of you are nodding, going, yeah, yeah, that's a great movie. And I thought so too, because I remembered like really enjoying this movie from my childhood. And so uh, we rented it on iTunes, and we were getting ready to stream it. Uh, and we all had our popcorn, and, and we're ready there in the living room to watch the movie. And we put the movie on, and we're watching. And after about 10 minutes, I realized that I had said the words, don't say that. As in, don't say that. Don't say that. You can't say that either. No, don't say that. Uh, Don't say that word. Uh, About 10 times in the first 10 minutes. And I thought, how did I forget this part of the, how how is it that I remember watching this movie as a kid and I don't remember any of this part of the movie? I don't remember any of this inappropriate conversation. I don't remember any of these words being in here. And why on earth did my parents let me watch this? And then I realized something. As I thought back about it, I, I remembered going to get the video. Now, when I watched the video as a kid, we watched it on something called a VHS tape. Now, some of you are going, a what? Um, so you maybe have heard of cassette tapes that had music on it. These are bigger, and they played videos. I mean, they were they're big rectangles about this size, and you had a player. You put it in. It kind of took it real slowly, and then there's a tape inside uh, that played that movie. I know some of you don't remember, uh, so I'm trying to help you out. Um, but we had these, these VHS tapes, and uh, you know, when I was growing up, you could go to a Blockbuster video, I don't think those exist anymore, um, or a Hollywood video, and even some of the grocery 
grocery stores uh, had video rental uh, places inside of them. Uh, and you could go and rent these VHS tapes and bring them home and watch them for a, a nominal fee. And so um, my family didn't often do that, though. What my family was more likely to do is my dad would plug in the VHS recorder and go buy blank tapes. Some of you are nodding your heads. You remember your father's doing this. And so we would have these blank tapes, and then in pen, handwritten ink, there'd be three or four movies written on the title of this because he would have recorded them from TV, right? They would broadcast them uh, over some network television or over cable, and he would record them. And my dad was really good at it. He would actually pause through the commercials so you had no idea that you were watching a a recorded thing from the television. Uh, And so uh, that's how we grew up watching movies. Well, I, I realized that when I would go get that tape and fast forward to the point and watch this movie, uh, that the networks back then would also help families watch these movies because they would dub over certain words with different words. And not only would they dub over words, but they would actually cut out entire scenes so that movies that weren't actually appropriate for children could be shown during prime viewing hours. And so, um, of course, I didn't remember the entire uh, movie, the way it was actually recorded and meant to be uh, uh, consumed, because we had a fake version of the movie that had been made appropriate for children. Now, um, that's fine, probably, when it comes to movies as silly as Back to the Future, but this becomes a problem for us, especially those of us who have grown up in church or grown up around church people, because so many stories that are in the scriptures have been uh, edited and modified to be made safe for children, uh, where we've, we've kind of lost in some ways uh, the real gist of the story. And the story that we're going to look at this morning uh, is, is maybe the worst offender uh, of this particular crime. And, and the story that we're going to look at is the story of Noah uh, and the ark. Now, um, if you grew up in church, you surely know of this story. If you didn't grow up in church, let me uh, inform you just a little bit. I'll give you a bit of a paraphrase about what this story is about. Um, it takes place in Genesis towards the beginning. And, and what has happened is evil has uh, really taken over the world. There, there's no one left who is good. There's no one left who is righteous. Uh, there's evil running rampant everywhere except for one man. His name is Noah. And so God decides that he is going to start over with creation. Uh, he's going to flood the entire earth and destroy everything, but he's going to save Noah and his family and start over with them. And so he gives Noah the instructions to build an ark, uh, and Noah does so, and when the ark is complete, Noah and his family go in, and they bring in with them a two of every unclean animal and seven pairs of every clean animal onto the ark. The floods come, they destroy everything. Noah and his family and the animals are kept safe on the ark. Uh, the flood resides, uh, the flood waters go down, Noah and his family come out, and they begin the process of repopulating the earth. Now that's a, that's a paraphrase. Now, Those of you who grew up in church might be wondering why I left certain parts out. For example, why did I not mention the part in the story where Noah runs around telling everyone that they need to repent and that they need to turn so that God will save them, so that God won't have this horrible calamity come upon them, or where Noah goes and tries to beg them to get on the boat with him so that they'll be saved because Noah doesn't want to see these people perish. Also left out the part where the people in the city around him are ridiculing him and making fun of him for doing this thing that seemed crazy to build this structure the size of a shopping mall uh, just because God said so I left those parts out. Do you know why I left them out? Because they're not in the story. They're not in the actual text. You won't find them in 
the Bible, those pieces. They were pieces that were added because we felt bad about what was happening, maybe. Or pieces, for whatever reason, to make the story more palatable. But if we read the actual text, those things aren't there. They didn't happen. Now, there's something else that I left out of the text, or left out of the story just now, that is in the text, and that is there are a lot of numbers in the text. It rained for 40 days and 40 nights. And um, there were uh, this many days between the time that Noah got on the ark and uh, when the rain started coming. And and there were this many days for this thing and this many days before this thing. And all these things happened. Uh, and, And the reason that I left those out this morning is because what can happen is if we start to focus on those numbers, we begin to ask the Bible to do something that it was not intended to do. We begin to ask the scripture to prove to us what happened and how it happened. But I want to remind us this morning of something that Pastor Darren told us at the very beginning of this series, that the Bible is not a science textbook, and it's not a history book. Now, there is history in the Bible, and we certainly believe that everything in the Bible is true. But it wasn't meant to be a book for um, Americans living in 2019 to look back and go, this is exactly what happened X amount of thousands of years ago. That, that's not its intent. That's what it wasn't. It wasn't designed to do that. And so what we find, because it wasn't designed to be a history book or a science book, is that sometimes, uh, in fact, more often than we'd like to admit, what scientists are finding and what the Bible says and what historians believe happened don't always match up exactly. Now understand something, this text was written thousands of years ago in ancient Hebrew to a culture that no longer exists in a language that no longer exists. And so it's reasonable to believe that they knew things and understood things and would have heard words differently than we are hearing them today. And I don't want you to hear that the Bible is wrong because that's not what I'm saying. We absolutely believe that the Bible is 100% true and accurate, but it is very susceptible to misinterpretation, as is the science in our world and the history in our world. These things are not perfect. They're, they're not exact. And so where we find things going, hey, this isn't adding up the way I thought it was, or, or scientists are saying this, but the Bible says this, or I think it says this, or, or what's going on here, uh, we can get really stuck on those things because the Bible wasn't meant to do those things. See, the Bible is a book of theology, which means the study of God and his attributes. The Bible wasn't meant to tell us exactly what happened. The Bible is meant to tell us who God is. And so I want to ask you to do this morning is to take, if you have those preconceived notions of what happened because you're very familiar with the story, you've heard it over and over again, to try and set those aside a little bit. And, and as we read through the text, I, I want to try and ask you to, to kind of ignore some of the, the numbers and the details that don't make a lot of sense or that, that you're not sure how this could have happened or how this could have played out because I don't want you to miss what God actually has for us from this text, which is to show us something about who he is, not something, not the history or details about what happened thousands of years ago. And so if we can do that, then I think we can find uh, something really, really amazing that God has for us this morning. Now, the story of Noah 
doesn't actually begin in Genesis chapter 6. Um, the heading uh, in the ESV and NIV Bible says that it begins in chapter 6, but if you're uh, a careful study, you'll realize that the story of Noah actually begins at the end of chapter 5 in Genesis. And we're going to look at uh, a passage there, Genesis 5, 28 and 29 is where we're going to start. And what it says here is that when Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah saying, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and for the painful toil of our hands. So Noah's story begins at the end of five. There's this long genealogy in five, uh, and it it really shows us uh, that the point is we're moving into what happened with Noah. Now, the reason that's important for us to note is because when we do turn the page and open chapter six, we get this really weird story. This really weird account of things that just simply don't make sense. And if you're doing the reading plan with us and you read uh, this on Monday morning uh, as we sent out that text and that email or you took the paper home and you're like, yes, I can't wait. It's Monday. We're going to read Genesis 6. And you started by reading Genesis 6 verses 1 through 3 and you went, what was that? Um, I I have some bad news for you. I can't help you this morning. Um. In fact, I don't know that anybody actually really knows what this meant except for the audience that it was originally written to thousands of years ago. I studied this passage. I looked at what scholars had to say. Scholars cannot agree. There is not consensus on what this passage means, but we're going to read it anyway. So here we go. Genesis chapter 6. Aren't you excited now? Uh, Genesis chapter 6, starting in verse 1. Here we go. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, my spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh, his days shall be 120 years. What? So, so if we step back for a second, right, we've got these characters that are laid out, the sons of God and the daughters of men, and, and then if we were to keep reading, there's another character introduced called the Nephilim, which who, who even knows what that means? It's a fun word to say, though. Um, and, and so, like, there's this really weird thing going on, and, and scholars don't know exactly what was meant by this, but here's what we can take away. In the context, what we realize is that whatever this is talking about, it's not a good thing. It's not a thing that God is happy that is happening. And we see that because of his response. The Lord said, my spirit will not abide in man forever. He is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. And then if we jump down to verse 5, it says that the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only continually evil. And so while we don't know exactly what this section means, what we do know is that it's the culmination uh, to this point of what Genesis has been showing us. That when Adam and Eve were created in a perfect world that God made for them and placed in the garden, made in God's image, that they messed that up by introducing sin into the world. By not being obedient to God, sin entered the world in Adam and Eve. And then just one generation later, we see their children, Cain and Abel, taking sin to a whole other level as Cain becomes jealous of his brother and doesn't just lash out at him verbally, but actually kills his brother because of his jealousy. And then we fast forward another generation or two and we come to this man named Lamech. And Lamech makes this claim that if you wound me, I'm going to kill you. You should be afraid of me. He's proud of his violence. You can read about his pride in violence in chapter 5. I would encourage you to go back and look at that. And now we come to this point where the sons of God, whoever they are, are taking any of the women as they choose to be their wives, whatever that actually means, and God is not happy about it. 
So what we see is there's a progression where evil is growing and growing and growing and wickedness is becoming more and more and increasing on the earth. And that's what God tells us in chapter 5. And this is where God then decides that he's going to intervene, that he's going to do something. And so we're going to read through the first part of this story uh, and then we're going to come back and reflect on it and see what we can learn about who God is. What it says, again, reading verse 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. That every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land. Man and animals and creeping things and the birds of the heavens for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Pay attention to that phrase. It's going to come back. Noah walked with God. Picking up in verse 11, now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and the earth was filled with violence and God saw the earth and behold it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end to all flesh for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. Jumping down to 17, for behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die, but I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. Now, some of you, if you're paying attention, notice that we skipped a couple verses here and there. That is for the sake of time. I encourage you, go back and read this on your own. I'm not trying to hide anything from you or keep anything from you. It really is just for the sake of time so we can get through uh, the passage and what God has for us this morning. But really, go back and read it for yourselves. Uh, but here's what we see. Um, evil has come uh, upon the earth in, in a way that, that God can no longer stand. He's no longer going to tolerate for the amount of evil that's on the earth. But there's one man who's righteous, and he's going to start over with that one man and his family. And so here's what we learn about the character of God from this story. That God saves the righteous, but will not allow evil to go unjustified. God saves the righteous, but will not allow evil to go unjustified. Now, the reason I'm using the word unjustified is because the picture that we get here is not of God being judgmental. God is not pouring out judgment, although it could be seen that way. God is writing the ledger. He's writing the account. See, when God looks and sees his creation has become evil, that that the things that were meant to be good, the things that were meant to bear his image are now doing evil and wickedness, he goes, that's not who I am. Things are not as they're meant to be. Things have gotten chaotic and out of control, and this is not what was supposed to be. And so I have to bring what is out of balance, what is out of order, back in to order. And God does that because he is a just God, because he's a good God, because he is responsible for the creation that he made. Because he looks down and says, this is not right, he corrects it. And the way that he corrects it is by saying, I'm going to get rid of the evil that's on the earth, but the man that's righteous, I'm going to save and start over with him. Now, We can read this, and and, and sometimes this has been read, and we get this picture in other stories in the Old Testament, that God is is somehow uh, temperamental, 
or that we're not sure when his anger is, is really going to bubble over. Like he's, he, he's uh, like some uh, fathers were. Uh, some of us had fathers like this growing up that you never knew what was going to send dad over the edge and you weren't sure when the yelling would start or, or when that was going to happen. And so, man, you, you just kind of got to be careful because you're not really sure what's going to send dad over the edge and then he's going to react and it's going to be bad. But that's not what's happening here because that's not who our God is. And if we read the text for what it is, if we read the text for what's there, notice the words that are there in 6 leading up to this. God was grieved over his creation. He was sorry that this was happening. It doesn't read like an angry God. It reads like a mournful God, a God who is disappointed in what's happened, a God who is sorrowful about what's going on, about what has to be done. But because he is good and just and right, this still has to be done. That wickedness, evil, cannot be allowed to go unjustified. And so God acts to make evil justified. And that is true to his character that he will always, always, always bring evil to justice. And this is a huge problem for us. And you go now, Pastor Sam, wait a minute. You said that God would bring evil to justice Are you saying that I'm evil? Well, I'm going to answer that in a minute. But first, let me call out what's going on. Because it happened to me when I kind of was preparing this message going like, yeah, I mean, I I know God won't let the evil go unjustified, but, but am I really evil? Like, am I really evil? Like, I mean, I've done some bad things. I've messed up a little bit. You know, I've said words. I've had thoughts that I shouldn't have. I've done things uh, in my past that I shouldn't have done. You know, I I know those those weren't right. But but am am I really evil? Like, I don't know if I've used that word to describe myself. And you're probably thinking the same thing. And for many of you, for most of you, probably for all of you, that's probably true. Given our English understandings of this word of evil, most of you are not evil people. That's not what I'm saying. But here's the thing. You've got to understand this. God's standard is not do more right than you do more wrong. God's standard is not let your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds. God's standard is not, you know, it's okay if you mess up on the small stuff, just don't mess up on the big stuff. That's not his standard. His standard is perfection. And the reason his standard is perfection is because we were made in his image and he is perfect. Our design, our purpose is to reflect the image of God, to declare the image of God to the universe. But if we are sinful in even the smallest way, if we have disobeyed God in even the tiniest way, then we do not reflect that image appropriately and we are guilty of Sin, this is what the scripture says about us in Romans chapter 3. Paul writes, none is righteous. No, not one. Not one understands. Not one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And Paul's going to go on in that chapter and down in verse 23, he's going to say this, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What he's saying here is that all of us have messed up and fall short of God's perfect standard. And then if we jump over a few chapters, Paul's going to say this, and this is the really scary part, that the wages of sin is death. The only way to justify evil, the only way to justify sin, no matter how big, no matter how small, the only way to justify it is with death. 
That is what sin breeds. That is what sin earns. That is what sin does. It brings death. That is the only justification. And this is terrifying. Or at least it should be. Because none of us have kept God's standard. None of us have kept his decrees perfectly. So what can we possibly do about this? Well, well, I think first we need to have a better understanding of what sin is. Most of us grew up uh, believing and understanding that sin is the things that we do wrong, that sin is the things that we do that, that God has told us not to do or not doing the things that God has told us to do. And that, that is one definition of sin. Uh, but I think that we've missed part of what sin is. And, and so I, I want to help us to unpack this a little bit. And we're going to jump to the end of uh, kind of the time on the ark when, when Noah and uh, his children come out of the ark and they make a sacrifice to God. And I want, I want you to see something that God says here as they're coming out. Uh, we're going to pick it up in, in chapter 8, verse 21. When the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever strike again strike down every living creature as I have done. Now, pay attention to this. Because what I expected to read, and what you probably expected to read, is God saying, hey, even though man is evil, I am still good, and so I'm not going to do this again. And I expected it to read, I will never again curse the ground because of man, even though the intention of his heart is evil from his youth. But that's not what it says. Again, if we read the text for what it is, we find that we find the true God and the true picture of God. And here's what it says. I will never again curse the ground because of man because the intention of his heart is evil from his youth. What I believe that God is saying here, what what he's saying, what he's declaring in this moment is that he knows that you are broken. He knows that you cannot help but sin. He knows that you were born into a world that is sinful, that you were born with a sinful heart, that you were born broken, that your image of God has already been corrupt from before you were born, and you cannot not sin. And God is declaring that in this moment and saying, because I know this, I'm never going to do this again. I, I want to point you to something that Paul says in Romans chapter 5. He says this, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, that's Adam, who brought original sin and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. The picture that Paul gives us here in Romans is not of sin being uh, acts that we commit or we learn how to be sinful we, and we decide to be that. But the, the, what Paul is telling us here is that sin is actually a heart condition. That we are born with it. That every human being since Adam and Eve have been born with a sinful, wicked, and broken heart. And the acts that we commit, the sinful things that we do, are a result of that sinful heart being within us. And so, we are without hope. None of us is righteous. None of us has met God's standard. And none of us can. We are without hope. But thanks be to God. That where there was no way, he made a way. That where it was impossible for us to please God, he made a way for us to know God. 
And, and again, it doesn't change his nature because God still is the God who says sin cannot go unjustified. But look at what he did. In Isaiah chapter 56, we find these words. But he, speaking of Jesus, was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray and have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, Jesus, the iniquity of us all. See, evil cannot go unjustified. But if we place our trust in Jesus Christ, our iniquities, our evilness, our sinfulness, all of the things that deserve death, that have earned death, get laid upon Jesus. And if we believe that Jesus Christ was the Son of God, that he came and lived the perfect life that we couldn't, and then willingly went to the cross and took upon himself the wrath of God, the judgment of God, the justice of God, that it was all poured out on him, that he took sin to the cross that he was buried, that he came back to life three days later, raised by the Father, and that new life exists in him, then we have hope because Jesus took our sin. And this is what is prophesied about those who put their faith in Christ. In In Ezekiel, he says this, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. See, when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, the heart of stone is removed. And it's replaced with a heart of flesh where the spirit of God himself dwells. And we can now walk with God. We can be with God. We can keep his statutes. We can keep his laws because we have walked with God. That doesn't mean we keep them perfectly. No, it doesn't. Because when you've been broken for this long, when you have generational sickness for this long, you can't help but go back to your original behaviors. But, it, but now, no longer is your heart sinful, although you do sinful things, but now God has replaced it with a heart that seeks after him and that he can dwell with you and we can be with God. Do you remember what set Noah apart? Noah walked with God and was counted righteous and was saved from God's justification. See, God still saves the righteous, does not allow evil to go unjustified. But the good news for us this morning is that though we were born sinful, though we were born evil, though we were born with evil in our hearts, There is a way to know God. And those of us who walk with God are now called righteous. And so there is hope for us. There is joy for us that our hearts of stone have been replaced with hearts of flesh, that we can walk with God, that we can know him, that we can keep his statutes.